Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. All right, listeners. Well, uh, as you've noticed, we've had just an array of great guests. I mean, the pod's really picking up. We've been so lucky to have Chris Hedges and then Bob Shear. And uh, today uh, we're lucky enough to have Rebecca Gordon. Um, She is also a Tom Dispatch alumni. So I've been writing there since, I guess, 2017 when, you know, Tom just took one of my rambling screeds and agreed to publish it when nobody else would. So I don't know if Rebecca has a similar story. She's probably a little more polished. But, uh, you know, it's an interesting place to write. I've been following her work there and and really just all the regulars for a while. Uh, Actually, since, you know, I've been reading Tom Dispatch since I was in Afghanistan. So, uh there's a lot of cool people at Tom Dispatch. I think that we could probably for our sins populate like a rather different sort of executive shadow administration, although uh, I'm not sure how it would work out, but I think less children would get bombed. Uh, (laughs) As for Rebecca, uh, she uh, received her bachelor's from Reed College uh, and her master's in divinity and PhD uh, in ethics and social theory from the Graduate Theological Union. Uh, She teaches philosophy or in the philosophy department at the University of San Francisco, mostly, of course, digitally now, uh, and for the university's Leo T. McCarthy Center for Public Service and the Common Good. Uh, You may know some of her previous publications, Letters from Nicaragua, uh, Cruel and Unusual, How Welfare Reform Punishes Poor People, very relevant now, Mainstreaming Torture, Ethical Approaches in the Post-9-11 United States, and then her latest, she does have a forthcoming, uh, is American Nuremberg, the officials who should stand trial for post-9-11 war crimes. Prior to her academic career, uh, you know, she was working in a variety of national and international movements for peace and justice, which is just so cool. Uh, I think first and foremost, she, maybe she doesn't mind me saying this, was an activist, you know, involved in the fight uh, outside of academia, although the two are linked. These include movements for women's liberation, LGBT rights, Uh, solidarity with poor peoples in Central America. I'm definitely going to ask her about the anti-apartheid movement in uh, the United States and South Africa, because that's kind of just one of my dorky interests. And then, of course, opposing the U.S. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, So, Rebecca, thank you so much. Uh, Thank you for listening to the long, flattering intro. And uh, I'm just so glad you're here. It's a real pleasure to be with you and your co-hosts. And I'm honored to be invited. So let's talk. Well, uh, so 
people who are only vaguely familiar with your work might think, you know, uh, oh, that's the torture lady, right? Uh, <laughs> given some of your more uh, recent work. And, and, and I think you're obviously so much more than that. Here at Forged on the Hill, you know, not just saying that. We are longtime fans. The guys jumped at it when I said, hey, maybe I can get Rebecca Gordon to come on. Uh, so I know that we know that you write and think about so much more. And we are going to broaden the interview accordingly. Uh, that said, I mean, I think for starters, I, for one, did initially find you and, and, and learn just a ton from your work on this issue. Uh, yeah. So first, what brought you, I guess, in a personal sense to the topic? And given that huge portions of Americans don't think that the U.S. really tortures uh, and even more don't care much uh, about foreign policy in general, can you explain why you think the subject is just so foundational for, you know, the Republic or what's left of it? Absolutely. So I think that my interest probably began with the time that I spent wandering around in the war zones of Nicaragua in 1984. And I was there with an organization called Witness for Peace, Acción Permanente Cristiana por la Paz. And our goal at that time was to demonstrate that the United States was actually violating the law at the time, which said that it was illegal for the U.S. to be assisting in any way the counter-revolutionary forces in Nicaragua, who were known as the Contra. And there was an amendment, in effect, called the Boland Amendments. This is going back a long time. But in the course of that work, I met people who had been tortured by... Contra, who had been trained in Honduras by the United States, and they described the training to me. And in later years, I discovered that, in fact, the CIA had an entire manual for um, this training, most recently republished by them or reissued in 1983, so a year before I was there. So I met people who were survivors of torture that was used not as a tactic, but in a strategic sense, as an intentional way of defeating the will of ordinary civilians to resist the, the Contra War. And so it was the, the strategy of the Contra War was primarily not to attack the military of Nicaragua, but to attack civilian institutions. So anything from phone lines to healthcare centers to schools to the people who staffed those things were the primary targets. And so after September 11th, um, it was very clear to me that whatever else the U.S. response was going to involve, that somebody somewhere was probably going to be tortured. And I began looking just in the ordinary press, and this is the thing about torture in the United States, is it's not really a secret. It's actually hidden in plain sight. So the first thing I saw was in November, like early November in Newsweek, uh, a liberal historian named Jonathan Alter wrote a piece called Time to Think, dot, 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 about torture. And he was talking about how the FBI had these people in um, in their hands who were refusing to reveal anything about September 11th. And because they were refusing to reveal anything, he suggested that we should either torture them ourselves, and he said there were some limits on what we could do, or we could send them off to a country that didn't have the same niceties that we do. Um, he proposed Saudi Arabia, land of beheadings. 
So who were these people he was talking about? They were not yet detainees who had been arrested in Afghanistan or in any of the other places around the world where the U.S. later began picking people up. These were actually people living inside the United States who were Muslims, some of whom had green cards, some of whom were here on tourist visas. There were about 600 of them, and they were held incommunicado in city jails in Brooklyn, New York, literally within sight of the Statue of Liberty for months. Nobody knew where they were. If this had happened in Latin America, we would have said they were disappeared. And while they were there, they were tortured. They were beaten with electrical cords. At least one of them was raped with a police flashlight. They were exposed to uh, the freezing cold in February, wearing nothing but a hospital gown. They were handcuffed to very hot radiators. They were tortured. And of course, they knew absolutely nothing about September 11th. And this points to one of the major problems with torture, which is that the pretext is about getting information, but that's not its real purpose. So that's a long way of saying that it's a subject that I first became really aware of during my work with Central America, but it was an interest that that resurged when it became clear just from reading between the lines in the New York Times and the Washington Post that the U.S. was engaged in torture as part of its response to 9-11. Yeah, it's so interesting that you brought up uh, the Contras and the Boland Amendment and the, and the early 80s, uh, really all through the mid-80s, because I, I've been thinking sometimes about this proxy war that was waged uh, and, and all the, the crimes that were involved in it. And in some ways it does seem, and, and it's a little bit off topic, but tell me what you think, that in the post pullout of at least the main brigades from Iraq and the, the drawdown in Afghanistan, that particularly under Obama and, and leading up until today, it does appear that in some ways, you know, the American way of war that everyone always searches for has shifted at least in part back to that proxy support, including uh, for proxies that in Afghanistan, for sure, torture, right? Have you, yes. have you seen some degree of that? Um, yes, I would, I would say that what you're saying is exactly right, that, you know, they used to call it low-intensity warfare during the 80s. And of course, it wasn't low-intensity for the people who were experiencing it. But the idea was that the U.S. Invents, investment of, especially of actual human beings, was very low-intensity. And that, yes, I think we are seeing exactly that. And I think, for example, of the U.S. involvement in Yemen, where we're at you know, quite a large distance from that war, and yet we are assisting Saudi Arabia, which is assisting one side in a civil war in a country that has been absolutely devastated. And I think that especially under Trump, you know, he's got this sort of contradictory desire to both spend as much money as possible on the military and yet not to actually um, become involved in any kind of military adventure overseas, which is an instinct that I, on an, in an odd sort of way, find myself applauding. Um, so yes, I think that, that, that there has been, since the middle of Obama's presidency probably, a desire to off, offload the actual um, 
military suffering onto proxies and and not onto our own armed forces. Um, that yeah, and it it seems like it's a perfect way. I mean, it puts so much distance. There's already distance based on just reporting blackouts and, and apathy because the all volunteer force. But then, of course, if you put an Afghan or you put a Somali or a Yemeni or a Saudi in between it, there's just even more space. Um, I'm I'm interested in what we talked about in our sort of scheduling messages for mm-hmm. this podcast. Um, you mentioned that your next project is uh, forthcoming. Maybe you can give us some details on that. You called it the the house that torture built and yeah. uh, mentioned that it's about the centrality of, you know, torture to the construction of major U S institutions like the economy. So if you wouldn't mind expanding on that, those are connections that I doubt many people would naturally link. And, and so I'm really interested. Yeah, I'd be happy to. This is a Haymarket book, and Tom Engelhart from Tom Dispatch is actually the editor. So he's been after me for a while to write a book, and so here we go. I offer. Oh no, a- you're you're in trouble if Tom's editing. You're gonna be wor- you're gonna be working your butt off. Sorry, go ahead. I offered him a lesbian comedy of manners, but that's not what Haymarket publishes, apparently. So <laughs> here we go. Um, okay, so. The argument of the house that torture built is, as you said, that torture has been central to the construction of major U.S. um, institutions. And to just take the example of the economy, it begins with the really before the United States itself existed in the colonial period. And it begins with the enslavement of people from Africa and one of the things that farmers, for example, in Virginia discovered was that there was a difference between the willingness of people who were brought from England, who were indentured servants, they were called. Some of them came voluntarily, some of them came less voluntarily, but all of them were offered the deal that if they worked for a period of between seven to 10 years, at the end of that period, they would be given a piece of land and the opportunity to become farmers and indeed to make use of the labor of other people. And so there was an incentive for them to work. When they brought people from Africa as slaves, there was no such incentive because there was no promise. They weren't going to be working for seven years and then get a piece of land. They and their children and their children's children were going to be enslaved, working to construct, at that point, an economy built largely on tobacco for forever, right? And so what farmers discovered was the only way that they could force these people to work was through physical pain and the threat of physical pain. And I'm talking about the profound physical pain that results from the kind of beatings that use um, leather to tear the skin off of a person's body. And this is something that went on in a very regular ritualized way from the very beginning of the presence of Africans in this country. And as um, one of the arguments that I make in mainstreaming torture is that you don't have to torture everybody in order for torture to have its effect. The effect and the purpose really is to frighten people into being afraid of resisting. And you can do that simply by letting people know that torture is happening. And so a big part of the ritual of, of punishment on 
these Virginia farms and then later in a much more industrialized way on the cotton farms, on the cotton plantations, is that it was done at a particular time during the day and everybody was forced to watch and it was it was a way of instituting and maintaining the power of the economic regime. And so Edward Baptist has written a book called The Half Has Never Been Told, which is a story of the way that the cotton business was developed when it moved out of the, the seacoast colonies and moved a little bit west and a little bit south into what's now Mississippi and Alabama and Louisiana and even Tennessee. And in those places, the first thing that had to happen is that the Native people who were already living there had to be moved. And they were removed and many of them ended up in Oklahoma or what is now Oklahoma. And then they instituted a gang labor, labor system, which by the organized steady use of torture allowed people to develop, you know, it's almost like a physical technology of the body so that in something like four decades, they were able to multiply by eight times the amount of cotton that an average individual could pick in a day. Now, some of that was a result of having more productive cotton plants and different varieties, but a lot of it was simply the result of changing the way the the work was organized and making it possible for one person to see through long, long lines of workers exactly what was happening through the entire plantation. And so cotton, cotton itself then became the harness, the engine rather, that was harnessed to build the U.S. economy in the new United States, not only in the southern states, but also in the northern states and also crucially in Europe and in um, the, the great cotton mills of England. Cotton and the enslaved people who picked and planted and picked the cotton were also used as backing for security. So the banking system came to depend on actual enslaved people as the collateral for um, for bonds that were issued in the South. Remember, this is a time before there was a generalized U.S. currency like the dollar today. And so there were many different systems of currency. And one of the things of value that was exchanged was pieces of paper that basically represented the securitization of human beings in a way that's very similar to how uh, back in 2008, one of the things that happened um, that brought that was really revealed in the financial collapse is that mortgage lenders had sold off mortgages to great big houses that held you know like Goldman Sachs that held many many thousands millions of mortgages and divided them up into little tiny pieces and issued bonds that were backed by a sliver of this mortgage and a sliver of that mortgage which supposedly spread the risk. Now, if all the mortgages were bad, as many of them were, it didn't, it didn't solve the problem. But the same thing was done two centuries before in the southern states. The banking system, essentially, and especially the European banking system, came to rely on the securitization of enslaved people as collateral. Now, the U.S. also used those collateral debts as a way of securing hard currency in the form of actual money, bullion, from Europe. 
Europe would exchange actual hard currency for this paper. And so that's one of the ways that the foundation of the U.S. economy was built on torture, was built on labor that was extracted through physical, profound physical pain. After the Civil War, you might think, okay, 40 acres and a mule, and uh, maybe sharecropping, and you know a little bit about that. But a lot of the work that continued to be done that built what was called the New South was also built through torture in the use of people who had been convicted of sometimes very, very minor crimes, who were then leased out as if they were photocopiers, leased out either back to the same plantations where they had been slaves sometimes uh, before the Civil War, before emancipation, or were leased as workers on the railroads, the roads, the coal mines and the iron mines. And it was the use of this convict labor once again enforced with that every, every um, workplace had an individual whose job, whose job title was whipping boss, whose job was to enforce labor discipline through the use of physical pain. And this is what built the steel industry. This is what built Birmingham steel. This is what built the whole infrastructure of industry in the Southern United States in the period after reconstruction up until really the 1920s. After that, convict labor continued to be used to continue building the highway system in the Southern United States. But at, by that point, they were no longer being, um, being rented out by counties to private enterprise. Instead, the state took power, control of them directly and rented out these human beings. Again, still controlled with physical pain. So that's one example. We can go further and look at the role of torture in, you know, jumping ahead for a while in the construction or the reconstruction of the U.S. economy after World War II, when the U.S. benefited from one having being the one country of the allies that emerged unscathed because the war was not fought on U.S. territory. And secondly, from a vastly and quickly expanding empire throughout Latin America and really around the world, and I don't have to tell you about that, but one of the things that this empire provided was very cheap raw materials for a resurgent U.S. economy in the post-World War II period. And it was through the use of torture, among other methods, that the regimes that the U.S. propped up in these places were able to maintain their power. And so we see this, for example, with the tin mills in Bolivia. We see it with copper and other important um, materials in Chile. We see it all over um, U.S. support for regimes from Greece to, um, to Indonesia and the Philippines. And all of these uh, all of these places provided raw materials, and we could argue that this is continuing to happen even today. You look at what's going on in the DRC and the use, you know, which the Democratic Republic of Congo, which is the locus of some of the most important rare minerals that are needed for our current technology boom. And um, 
the U.S., of course, has a long history in the Congo. And so all of which is to say that ultimately the extraction of labor through the enforcement of physical pain in a very direct and ritualized and state-supported um, way was central to building the U.S. economy in its earliest years and really, to some extent, even today. Does that help? Oh, yeah, that's great. You know, um, what I really liked about your answer and about the project, which I'm going to 100% read, is the way that you show that whether it's slavery or slave labor or prison labor, these aren't stagnant issues. I mean, they develop and they and they change. And exactly. you know, this is a final note before I uh, go against my instincts and shut up so the other guys can jump in. I actually assigned Baptist book uh, when I was allowed to design a, an advanced U.S. history course at West Point. Oh, great. Uh, which it, it was great, and, and the students really responded well to it. Uh, not everyone, when they figured out what I was doing, was completely pleased uh, at West Point. <laughs> but, uh, but I got away with it. They couldn't, they couldn't argue with the scholarship, so that, that was the advantage. Hey, folks. Henry, I'm going to jump in here. I, uh, I have a question a little more central to post-9-11 mm -hmm. policies. So I, I heard you mention in an interview on American Nuremberg that – you believe it would be a good step for the U.S. government to write its own federal law against torture. And I'm, I'm curious as to why you think a law written that way would make the difference. You've mentioned in a different Tom Dispatch piece the idea that the results of Nuremberg could be simply seen as victor's justice and little more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and couldn't the powers that be simply waive this new law uh, for their interrogators? So many other laws already get waived or given exceptions for military and intelligence operations? That is a really good question. And of course, the U.S. actually has a law against torture. It's um, paragraph 2340 of the U.S. Criminal Code, and it makes torture illegal anywhere outside the United States. And the reason for this is because when the U.S., um, so the U.S. signed the um, U.N. Convention Against Torture. But when the U.S. signed it, part of what the convention required was every country that signs it has to also create legal structures to implement the, the, the convention in their own country. And what the U.S. argued was we already have laws against assault and laws against kidnapping and laws against battery in the United States. So we don't need any new laws for things that might happen inside the United States. So what we'll do is we'll pass a law saying it's illegal for anybody who's a U.S. person to um, commit these acts outside of U.S. territory. So one of the things I think I was probably talking about in that interview about American Nuremberg was that we need an actual law against torture that takes place inside the U.S. with an understanding that torture is different from simple battery, from the things that one individual might do to another individual, but that it's an institutionalized practice that is embedded in a larger society. Do I think that having the laws um, will prevent people from torturing or will guarantee that people who do engage in it won't be exempted from any kind of 
of justice? No, I don't. But I do think we can't, we are much worse off without the law. I think what I argue in American Nuremberg is that although many people did claim that it was Victor's justice, and I think there's, there's something to that, certainly to the extent that some of the people who organized the Nuremberg trials really thought that almost immediately afterwards, there would also be trials of the Allies for things like the um, firebombing of Dresden or the firebombing uh, that we don't hear about nearly as much of over 60 um, Japanese cities that completely destroyed those cities and incinerated millions of people, and that there would be an ongoing court whose purpose would be to hear these kinds of cases. And in fact, it took another 50 years for that court to exist, and it's the International Criminal Court, which the U.S., of course, withdrew from in 2002 after, after the 9-11 attacks and after the start of the so-called War on Terror. I think that what Nuremberg did achieve, even if that achievement may not have held, is the idea that international law is real law and that violating international law can have real consequences. And as a person who believes that, you know, we're all sort of on this globe together, I think that the, the hope of the species is in some ways um, tied up with the possibility of having international structures and organizations that are effective. And even if laws are not always obeyed, that to me doesn't mean that we shouldn't have laws. But what it does mean is that's not where you stop. That's where you start. Then it takes agitation and political effort and activism and the work of good lawyers and the work of people in the streets to actually see that the laws are enforced. I mean, another example would be going back to 1954, when the Supreme Court decided in Brown versus Board of Education that segregation of, of uh, kindergarten through 12th grade schools was, was unconstitutional, that doesn't mean that segregation ended you know, the next day. And in fact, the first actual desegregation of schools in the South didn't start until 1957 when nine students entered, black students entered a white school in Little Rock, Arkansas. And in the end, the government had to actually call out the National Guard to protect them. So the federal government had to intervene to make it possible to desegregate schools. And there's a long history that is not the subject of this interview of what happened after that and how segregation was able, how, how um, communities were able to resegregate their schools. But the point is that the law by itself is, isn't enough. It also takes the action of citizens and other people living in a country to actually put that law into effect. Is that convincing? Mm, yeah, I, 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 I think so. I, it's, it's, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around because I ask myself about the the morality of other people that have been in the military you know mm -hmm. I, I, here's a, here's a good example of Tulsi Gabbard Tulsi Gabbard mm -hmm. um you know when all the stuff came out about 
whether she supports torture or not, and that's that's not not really the point, but that she clearly didn't understand that part of her oath made it clear that if she was protecting prisoners or detainees for any reason, that their health and welfare is in her hands, no different than a soldier under her command. Right. We're told to, to ignore that. Um, and I, I think that's the problem is, you know, like you said, is that we can, we can make as many laws as we want, who's actually going to see that they're enforced. And I do agree with you, the law should exist just because we haven't got it together to find a way to stop it doesn't mean we shouldn't continue uh sorry i lost my train of thought but yeah you, you no know it was going yeah no exactly what you're saying that just because we have doubts about whether the law would be enforced adequately doesn't mean we shouldn't have the law in the first place exactly i think you know the point about about the oaths that soldiers take is a very important one because i think you know, you've heard the, the, I'm sure know more about it than I do, the term moral injury. But one of the things that, um, you know, is clear to me, even from talking to the veterans who've been in my classes, is how very difficult it is when one's orders conflict with the oath, right? When, when soldiers are put in a position of either violating orders or violating oaths. And we know that they are not supposed to obey illegal orders. And that's a really easy thing for me to say sitting in my room in San Francisco. It's a very different thing to say when the person who is giving you the orders is standing there with a gun and in a position to, you know, to cause any kind of harm to you. And so I think, I think that even and tell me what you think it seems to me that there's also a real disconnect between the military leadership um of the in the u.s government and the civilian leadership at say the pentagon who haven't taken those oaths and haven't got the same commitment say to geneva or to the other you know the other laws of war that um that that seems like a wedge point or a possible wedge point where you you might be able to get some traction but i don't know post 9 11 all we've seen are our generals rubber stamp everything you know we we sometimes on on twitter or other places people will talk about you know uh martin dempsey he's a, he's a real good general he'll he'll stand up and there have been uh, a couple points that i've seen where generals have come up in, in defense of Trump, but they're probably Democratic-leaning generals uh, going after Trump, and they're not doing it for any kind of morality play mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And so it, it, it's, it's all about what the orders are. It, it, it's clearly that. That's, that's how it's always been. Anything else that we say are the rules is lip service, especially when no one who cares about them is looking. Yeah. Yeah. I, I cannot imagine how difficult that is. Um, I have friends who are vets who talk about it, and yeah, it's it's really hard. I was lucky that the time I spent wandering around in somebody else's war, um, I did it as an unarmed civilian, and you know, there that I learned the origin of the expression "scared shitless," um, and there were definitely times I really thought that that was, you know, that that was going to be the end of my life within the next few minutes. But um, 
I was never put in a position of having to violate my own conscience. And I feel very grateful for that. It's interesting. You, you bring up the point about um, working in with military and civilian leadership. I, so I worked, uh, I was in the Navy, but I worked at NSA. So I worked Mm -hmm. at one of the NSA compounds in Georgia working with, um, different agencies and different special forces groups doing activities in Yemen and Somalia and uh, Libya and Syria. So a lot of the places that you were talking about. Yeah. Um, I, I like, I like what you said about all the legal thing and the thing that bothers me the most about the law when it comes to what the government wants to have happen is that, uh, and we we talked about this a little bit when we were kind of talking about the torture report movie. Mm-hmm. And we discussed how like the lawyers were sitting down in a room talking about, okay, well, what does like lethal mean? What does this mean? And it's like that's the shit that they do is a break yeah. it down and say like, well, we're not breaking the laws. We're defining this as this. Yep. Yep. For me, as someone who works in different operations, when you say something as an imminent threat and you're working with, you know, an agency that uh, that doesn't really, um, those two words don't actually fit the definition of what we're doing. Right. Is It was fucking mind-boggling and also yeah. really frustrating for me, like being the analyst, being the person who, you know, I thought my job was to sit there and tell the truth and like be objective and here's the data. No, but it's, it's not about that. It's about like if your data doesn't, con- doesn't uh, coincide with the narrative or what, the like the operation generally is going then you know oh we're just kind of pushing you to the side and it's really it's really frustrating for me um so i love that i love what you were talking about uh, my big question is about us uh, since we're discussing um the idea is like we want to be able to talk about this stuff mm-hmm. but because things are classified we can't always talk about them. And it's really frustrating for me having worked in the community because there is so much stuff that is overclassified, like yeah. crazily. And it's, it's um, I listened to, uh, I read a bunch of stuff by the guy who is the classification czar under the first administration. And I just love everything he has to say because he is so dead on about how uh, people will overclassify things because they feel you know, it, it'll make them look better. Like personally, they can say, oh, look, I'm the, origin, I'm the originating authority for this. So look at all this stuff that I classified. And some people won't even read stuff unless it's at a certain level of classification, which so some people will, will put things into a different level specifically because they want people to read. And, wow. Wow. And, and that really messes up the ability to like ask any real questions in detail because you can't, <laughs> because you can't say anything and it, it's it was so frustrating to me just the stuff that i would read every day and like i you know why is this classified the way it is mm-hmm. why is this even classified i can find this out on the internet right know, yeah exactly exactly <laughs> and and so much of classification is used to protect people's butts yes and but i had never heard before that the idea that you would use a higher classification to give an extra sheen to your own material. That is, that is just perverse, but it makes sense. And of course, 
you know, it makes it impossible for people who don't have security. Well, this is the thing, though. It's not impossible. Like everything that I wrote in Mainstreaming Torture and American Nuremberg, it was all in the public domain. You know, Dana Priest at the, at the Washington Post wrote about stress and duress at Bagram Air Force Base in early 2002. You know, it wasn't a secret, and yet it's classified. So it's a, it, it really does a number on your head, and it must have been really hard for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's just it's frustrating when you want to ask questions. And something that Danny talks about a lot, but we kind of, we talk about it in the pod, is just the idea of the military cares, like they're focusing more on tactics than strategy. Mm-hmm. You know, everything is about short-term gain and short-term like resolution. And then we pat ourselves on the back and say, look at how many things we did. And to say that like, by the act of doing something, we are creating progress, but we're not actually measuring progress. And this is, this is, this whole benchmarking and measuring is actually a way of evaluating work that doesn't even come from the military in the first place. It comes out of this, um, the, economic system we live in, in which the horizon that that even large corporations care about has been shortened to like the quarterly report, right? Anything that is longer, a longer uh, time than what the, what the stock price is going to be at the end of the quarter becomes irrelevant. And the way that we measure work is exactly as you say, by checking off activities done which have been identified in order to satisfy some goal that you've set for a very short time horizon. But nobody is asking, for example, as we are entering into a century in which the People's Republic of China is poised to become the most powerful nation in the world, what what is the strategy, if any, of a United States of America in relationship to that? What's our strategy in relationship to Europe, the European Union, the continent of Africa? We, we don't have strategies. You're, I, yeah. You know, it, it, all, all of this is, is it's, it's fascinating and it's, it's disturbing. And I sometimes wonder uh, when we do these interviews, when I write my articles, you know, uh, are we getting through to anybody? You know, it's, it's like, there's these camps, there's the camp that's, you know, fact and knowledge based and, and, and believes that we can find some sort of truth, whatever that is. And then, mm-hmm. and then there's the, then there's the political divide and there's the fake news and all of this dis- descriptor and how you feel about China, which is like you mentioned, this extraordinarily complex strategic <laughs> geostrategic question often comes down to, well, how do you feel about Trump? Right, uh, and, and that kind of leads me to the next thing I want to ask you. So it's 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 a pivot uh, without a very good transition away from some of the torture talk, but we like to keep it fast and loose. Go for it. Uh, there were there were two recent articles uh, that you wrote. I think they were both for Tom, but I I stole mm-hmm. the title from the Nation because I thought it was interesting uh, for the question. So 
uh, both of them interested me, and it might not be obvious to most folks, but I, I at least, and you could correct me, thought they were connected, or they can be connected. Uh, the first was uh, Strange Attractors, uh -huh. which titled this, uh, On Being Addicted to Trump and His Press Conferences. Of course, we're going to have to talk about that. And then the second one, which I think was right before, was um, it was retitled by The Nation as How Much Cruelty Can Trump Get Away With? Uh, ask Obama. So, you know, my thought has always been, okay, it's clear Trump is unique, right? And he is no doubt obscene uh, in a number of ways. Uh, that's got to be said. Um, but he's also become like a media and public fixation, obsession. You mm -hmm. know, if Trump is for it, half of America is against it. You know, if Trump said Mussolini was an awful guy, MSNBC would do a biopic, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, you know, but then again, the Donald, you know, the Donald came from somewhere uh, mm -hmm. besides Queens. Uh, and, uh, you know, so my questions are, you know, what do you think, and, and this is a big question for any guest, but what do you think is singular about Trump and his policies? And then what aspects of his first term do you think were were more or or most informed by the failures of the you know his predecessors or mm. his forebears, including Saint Obama, uh, if any. Okay, what do I think is unique about Trump? I think his particular constellation of failings is unique. He is probably the least prepared individual at least certainly in my lifetime, who has ever um, occupied the Oval Office, his lack of an attention span, the, the um, shallowness of his knowledge base. I mean, we had another example just last week when he suggested, gee, maybe we should try drinking bleach as a solution to the, the coronavirus. I mean, just the fact that <laughs> Just the fact that there is so little knowledge about anything in that head and his, his unwillingness to add to his knowledge and his, you know, pers his consolation of narcissism and all of that, all of that is unique and unpleasant and horrible. What is not unique is the ways that the Republican Party has been able to use his presidency to implement the kinds of policies that they have wanted to implement for decades. Ever since they lost the White House after Ronald Reagan, I mean, things they weren't able to get done during either of the Bush administrations, they have been able to do these gigantic tax cuts in 2017 that. Um, have so deeply exacerbated the inequality in this country. The attacks on organized labor, which of course begin with Ronald Reagan, but continue up to this day. The, um, the uh, putting the, the placement of Supreme Court justices, the, the incredible disarticulation, the taking apart of a whole regime of regulations that protect the environment that are designed to make an attempt to reduce the emissions of, of carbon dioxide and methane and other greenhouse gases, the withdrawal from the, uh, from the, I'm not sure the entire Republican Party wanted the U.S. out of the Iran Treaty, but they certainly wanted the U.S. out of the Paris Accord on climate change. So all of these and sort of the general transfer of money from poorer people to the pockets of rich people has accelerated under the Trump presidency. And these are things that 
um, that are part of the plain old regular uh, Republican agenda. So, so that is not a surprise. In the realm of foreign policy, and um, I would say that, as I said before, you know, Trump is um, is a very strange combination of isolationism and um, wanting a military that what he wants is trappings. He's very excited, for example, that the Blue Angels are going to be doing air shows around the country in order to um, pick up our spirits. Now, I personally hate it when the Blue Angels fly over my city because I don't want them to crash on my house. And um, also because uh, I, I still have a sort of weird... Um, the only airplanes that went over Nicaragua during the time I was there were, were for the most part, not a good thing. Um, so in any case, um, he, so he loves the trappings. He wanted to have that big military parade, but in terms of actual U S action, here's a place where I think he has really violated the post-war foreign policy consensus between the Republicans and the Democrats, and where there is some daylight between him and the Republican um, establishment, because whatever he may say about uh, America first, the actual steps that he has taken have significantly reduced the power of the United States on the international scene. And that's not just because of his um, desire to to draw down the military, and I'm not sure how much he's actually drawn it down, to be honest, but because of his refusal to participate in the international arenas where the U.S. is used to le leading. What I wrote about in that, that piece from The Nation that you were mentioning is that it was, that came out right after the Senate voted to acquit him after his impeachment. And what I said there was that the um, the idea of impunity for elected officials or appointed officials, the idea of impunity was not something that begins with the Trump administration and that we can look back to, for example, the Obama administration's response to the reality, I mean, Obama ran on a platform that he was going to close Guantanamo and he was going to end torture in addition to a number of other things. And um, as we know, Guantanamo is still open. And uh, when he began to address the question of torture, which he did almost, he really did before, after he was elected, before he even took office. And certainly the day after he took office, he issued executive orders forbidding so-called enhanced interrogation and closing down the CIA's black sites. But as he constantly said, we have to look forward and not backwards. And what that meant was nobody was ever held accountable by the U.S. itself for any of the uh, torture or other violations of the laws and customs of war that the U.S. committed during the entire Bush administration, during the entire so-called war on terror. I mean, the only people who really ever were convicted were a few of the reservists who were let loose in Abu Ghraib in, in Iraq and um, in order to uh, get the admiration of the CIA and the contractors upstairs, did what we know 
because we have the pictures, happened at, at Abu Ghraib. And they were really the only people who, um, or almost the only people who suffered any kind of, any kind of consequences. So a lack of accountability in one administration sets the table for a lack of accountability in a new administration. And that is exactly what we've seen here. The guys and I love doing the podcast, being able to share our experiences in the military with allies and supporters means the world to us. But we can't do all the work. We need you to share an episode of ours with someone, anyone whom you might think could be affected by it. A young person looking to join the military or possibly parents advocating for a kid joining the military, conscientious citizens who care about the violence, the US wages in their name, advocates for women and people of color who understand the harsh environment the military creates for minorities and inflicts on those same minorities across the globe, and anyone else you think might be affected by it, please take a moment, share this with them. Now, our podcast is supported in a few different ways. First, there's Patreon, where we're blessed to have an array of wonderful supporters helping the guys and I pay for some of the podcast's expenses. Those who contribute $10 a month or more will be mentioned right here as an honorary producer of the podcast, helping keep you, our listeners, stocked with new episodes. But you don't have to contribute $10 a month to help us. For as little as a dollar a month, you can help keep us going, paying for hosting and storage fees, transcribing old and new episodes, promoting and expanding the podcast, and more I'm sure I can't think of at the moment. So let's bring out these honorary producers, and they are Will Arenz, Fahim Shirazi, Henry Zamoda, Adam Bellows, Eric Phillips, Paul Appel, Julie Dupree, Thomas Benson, Emma P., Janet Hansen, Lawrence Taylor, and the Status Quo Podcast. Your contributions are wonderfully helpful to us. Thank you so much. However, if Patreon isn't your style, you can contribute directly to us through PayPal at paypal.me forward slash Fortress on a Hill. Or please check out our store on Spreadshirt.com for some great Fortress merch. And do understand that if you can't afford to contribute to us, that doesn't bother us at all. This is a hard time for everybody, and we just want to make sure that what we share gets to as many people as possible. And now, let's get back to the podcast. Absolutely. It was extraordinarily disturbing for me to, to watch some of Obama's moves, specifically around the issues of accountability. Um, I was one of those folks who kind of fell for the, I think because I had just gotten back from Iraq, uh, did a little bit of secret work in Southern Indiana, which we won, right, for the first time right. since like 64. It was probably it was probably me getting yelled at on people's front steps. Uh, well done. That did, that did it. I take credit. Uh, but, but, you know, I was a real believer, uh, just got back from Iraq. Okay. This guy's going to end it. And, and, and then of course a broader thing. And, and yet, like you mentioned, Guantanamo is open and that's not all of his fault, but I mean, they're putting people on hospice care there yep. and I'm left with, 
you know, which means that that's the government admitting these people will die there, some yeah. number of them. Uh, there's no plan to really prosecute most of them, or we can't. And I am often left wondering on this tangent, uh, how do we meet, make the American people feel empathy for, quote, terrorists, right? For a hundred odd guys that are still down in Guantanamo. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what you think about that, but it seems like maybe that's almost an impossibility in these moments. I think right now it's very hard to get the American people to feel empathy for anything but their immediate family just because of the coronavirus. I mean, you know, I'm used to reading the news every day, and I also listen to the BBC for what we call the imperial news, um, which uh, is, you know, it is the imperial news, but at least they have a wider view of the world than, say, NBC or CBS. So you you get a slightly different take on things. But most people in this country, even when they're not facing a pandemic and losing their income and terrified about how they're going to pay the rent, are not really eager to think about places outside the United States. And so getting people to have sympathy for, um, for you know, 40-odd guys or 100, however many there are down there in Guantanamo, I think is not going to happen. And this is where I think that the work that's going to be done is going to be done by lawyers who, you know, some of these JAG lawyers are really my heroes. These people who have, you know, who are the defense and who have been insisting on actually defending their clients. I honestly think that the people who are going to be in hospice care are going to die in Guantanamo. I think Abu Zubayah is going to die in Guantanamo. And um, it's just a, a horrendous travesty in the midst of, of a period of unprecedented horror. And I mean, well, not unprecedented. I would say World War II was pretty awful. But when I think about the number of human disasters that are happening around the the world and how they have disappeared. I mean, the locust invasion in East Africa would have been one of the biggest stories of this time period, except that it's fallen completely off the front page because of the coronavirus. And the problem of getting people in this country to care about anything outside this country is one that I've been working on since I was about 13 and first opposed the Vietnam War. So um, if you have a solution, let me know. I do it sort of on a retail level teaching college. You know, it's not, it's really one by one. And it's not, um, it's not politics in the same way. It's not movement building. But I have derailed more than one business student's career, so I feel good about that. Well, I will tell you right there, if you got one less person uh, to go to Goldman Sachs, the world is a better place. So, uh, no, that's that's great. And, uh, yeah, Kagan, why don't you broaden this out to the national security state a little bit? Um, yeah, so it's interesting talking just about what Obama did versus Bush and everything. I was I so I was in the community from uh, 2009 to 2013 is when I was in the Navy so I was part of that whole transition from yeah you know people like on the ground to us basically doing everything via drones and special forces right. community 
And it was really frustrating for me because I also, like Danny, I was very like, hell yeah, in 2008, I remember like I was from Illinois, so he was my senator when I first met him. And I was like, holy shit, this guy has something. You know, so I, I got swept up in it too. And it was just really frustrating for me though, working in the community and like working, uh, you know, basically creating foreign policy with what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And it was really frustrating that like, you know, we, there, the, the question of stopping never came up. The question of, is this working? Like yeah. in the real sense of like, are we accomplishing what we set out to do? That wasn't a real question. And, you know, we were just supposed to be happy with what we were doing. And so like, I think for me, the biggest thing that I found that helps, helps people see perspective is to bring it to them. You know, yeah. where you say like, hey, if you got kidnapped from your house because somebody told you, oh, you were a part of this thing and you had no idea, or maybe tangentially, like you knew somebody that did, you know, oh, you would, you would not be okay with that. Mm-hmm. And that's how I try to get people to think about the war in Yemen and to think about the operations that I was a part of, particularly because they weren't getting a lot of attention at the time. But yeah. um, it's... I I know that that works anecdotally sometimes, and it also works sometimes on a smaller level, like what you were saying. But I'm wondering, what are some of the big, in your mind, what are some of the big policy reforms that we can make to really shift our perspective? I think this is going to seem sort of like a tangential answer, but I have felt for the last 20 years that what I am doing and what the activists that I know are doing is attempting to bring, um, if, if we think about the U.S. empire as an airliner that is in desperate trouble and is perhaps, you know, ran into a wind shear or something and is now plummeting towards the earth. I've sort of felt like what I'm trying to, we're trying to do is bring it in for a soft landing, causing as little damage underneath us as possible. In other words, I think that, um, there are forces that are even larger than the U.S. empire at work that are, in fact, going to constrain the U.S., not in the immediate term, not in the next five years, maybe not in the next 10 years, but that there are, in fact, forces that are going to change the balance of power at you know, the international strategic level, and that a dying empire is a very, very dangerous thing. And that as it thrashes around, to mix my metaphors, it's kicking a whole lot of people in the process. And so I'm not sure that the, that the sort of the pivot, that the wedge that we have to, to, or the way that we can accelerate this process is necessarily with policy proposals. I mean, for example, all during um, the Bush administration and indeed the, the Obama administration, there was an organization called Move the Money. And the objective was to take money from the military budget and to move it into human needs inside the United States. And you would think that this would be something that would naturally appeal to many, many people. And in fact, for 
back during the Vietnam War, they used to do this, this project at um, state fairs where you'd set up a table and you'd have give everybody a hundred pennies and ask them to divide their pennies into the things they wanted to see the federal budget spend money on. And it would always end up that the things people actually wanted the money spent on were things like education and healthcare and, you know, uh, building roads or whatever. And very little of it was actually on the military. But in fact, because there's so much um, money tied up in the military and in production for the military, those, those changes that people would like to see um, are not ever reflected. So I wish that I could say that projects like Move the Money that focus on, um, on building a, uh, an, a budget for human needs as opposed to human destruction, what I will say is that this particular moment is the first time in at least 20 years when something external, the coronavirus, something that has had an effect that nothing you know, else has had of shutting down most of the US economy for a prolonged period of time, does maybe give us a moment when we can talk about reorganizing our own society along the lines of providing for what I think of as real national security, the security of the people who live in this country, and um, meaning their health, their ability to take care of themselves and their family, the possibility of having meaningful work, all of the things that make for a good life. Let's think about reorganizing our economy in that direction. And, you know, given that we have an election coming up in November, we do, in a way, have an opportunity that we haven't had in a long time to um, propose policies that actually would benefit human beings as opposed to a very few very wealthy human beings. So all of which is to say um, that, that this is a moment we shouldn't lose. This is a moment we need to take advantage of because we're not going to get another chance like this for a long time. So uh, building on the uh, systemic issues that uh, Kagan and Danny mentioned, one of the things that we talk about a lot in the pod is the ways that empires eventually tend to come home. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking right now of, of troops that are used to abusing detainees or using unnecessary force easily transition over to being police officers or prison guards who end up doing the same thing. Certainly not everybody, but a, a, a sizable portion. Can you discuss some of the nexus between torture policies by uh, US foreign, under U.S. foreign policy and the law enforcement and prison industry? Oh, yeah. The connection is extremely direct. And you're exactly right. It's the same personnel. And interestingly, in some cases, it actually starts with people who are already corrections officers who are brought into the military. So for example, um, it was people who were reservists, but were largely prison guards in real life, who helped to design the, um, the camp at Guantanamo, Camp X-Ray, and the, the, first, the first installations at Guantanamo. And in fact, one of the most notorious uh, Chicago policemen 
uh, was one of the people who actually consulted with the military on the design of Guantanamo. And he was notorious for essentially torturing confessions out of people who were arrested in Chicago. Similarly, the reservists who were at Abu Ghraib were most of them corrections officers in civilian life. So they already came with a a set of ideas about how prisoners ought to be treated. So those things go in both directions. But yes, uh, we are seeing, um, as you say, that many people, especially enlisted um, soldiers who come back to the U.S., find that their army experience doesn't necessarily um, make them the most attractive employees for a lot of employers, and a lot of them do end up using that experience in prisons, jails, and on police forces. And the prisons of the U.S. have long been a locus of torture, another place where torture was uh, common. And in fact, Harry Blackman, who was a justice of the Supreme Court back in the 90s, wrote about how torture was actually common in U.S. prisons. And there are a number of different kinds of torture, one of which is the routine systemic use of rape in both men's and women's prisons, Um, and as well as exposure to heat and cold, physical punishment, all of the things that we see deployed in in, um, interrogations we also see, and of course, um, isolation, sleep deprivation, those. Another place where we're seeing a direct connection between the military and police forces is in the, uh, the, <laughs> the gift of material, the gift of military hardware to police forces. So that, for example, in East Oakland, which is right across the bay from where I am in San Francisco, I have friends who are used to seeing MRAPs, you know, parading, patrolling the streets of East Oakland. It's um, similarly, they get night goggles, they get assault weapons, they get all kinds of weaponry that really are more suited to deployment in some kind of battlefield than they are to policing a neighborhood where kids and grown-ups and you know people are just going about their lives so the connection is very very direct and and henry as you say um if somebody has learned in the military that he or she has the right to abuse someone in their power then that person is going to carry that belief into a civilian job, especially if it's a job which gives that person legal power over the lives of other people. And it's, it's, a, very, it's a very real problem. Well, yes. And, and, you know, East Oakland has some MRAPs. I was doing some work on an Empire Comes Home piece, and it's really – I guess small towns in, you know, Indiana and Wisconsin uh, also need MRAPs. You know, they have a thousand people. I found one town in southern Indiana that hadn't had a murder since, like, the Kennedy administration. But but they have, like, MRAPs. I mean, and it, it's, it, it, some, it, it's actually funny. It's so absurd. But at the same time, you know, you mentioned it, it comes into the prisons, but it also comes out onto the streets. Right. Uh, you know, my... Uh, academic work is actually on a totally different subject, uh, race in New York City. And, and you look at how 
we get used to being an occupying power, right? We get right. used to being this force. And so then the people, if you're a police officer later that you're supposed to be serving become the enemy. I mean, just by a natural binary and it's, it's really dangerous. Um, so, you know, uh, again, very rapidly transitioning from there. I, uh, you know, I was reading about your life through, through some of my pre-pod, you know, mild cyber stalking. Um, I'm usually on the, the receiving end of that because I am single. Uh, and I have, (laughs) I have a disturbing amount of, uh, public, you know, uh, info there about me, which is usually problematic. Uh, (laughs) but, uh, you know, but, but something that did stand out and about your writing and teaching is, you know, like I said, dare I say, first and foremost, you started, you seem to remain an activist, a social Mm -hmm. justice warrior. You know, we always shy from those things, but there's, it's the it really is the work that needs to be happening so uh you've probably uh if you have more time on your hands than you should may have seen that uh, in some of my recent verbose scrawlings uh as a history dork i've been just on like an africa spiral specifically mm-hmm. southern africa mm-hmm. this is what happens to me i get into these manic phases and quarantine's not helping no uh, but uh you know I saw that you had done work in South Africa, yeah. specifically in Pretoria, I believe. And I was wondering if you could, you know, do two things. And that is, you know, tell listeners a little bit about that work, what it was like to be in that moment in South Africa. You know, I think it's largely been forgotten the extent to which we supported apartheid yes. uh, directly and indirectly. Yes. And then and then a lot of these connections about policing and race are, of course, happening here. And then, yeah, so if you could tell us some some relevance if you see any um, from that international opposition movement to, hey, the fight today, right? Mm -hmm. Well, I have to say, um, so my partner Jan and I and a third person spent three months in South Africa, actually mostly in Cape Town. And um, I spent a little bit of time in Joburg as well. And Jan spent some time in a rural town called Oshfern out on the Eastern Cape. But um, but it was an amazing moment to be there because it was in 1990. And we were there from um, June, July, and August. And so, or actually April, May, and June is when it was. And in February, Nelson Mandela was released from prison and the ANC was unbanned. But during the time that we were there, all of the legal structures of apartheid were still in place. So it was this very strange limbo moment when everyone in the country was waiting to see what the new South Africa was going to be. So it was a very, a very strange and fascinating moment and an incredible privilege to be there. What we were doing was working, we were doing desktop publishing training for an anti-apartheid newspaper in Cape Town. And uh, they were working on these little Mac, the old Macintoshes that had the little nine inch screen. And they wanted to move to using that to um, do page layout for, um, for their tabloid size newspaper. And so we were, we were helping with that. And the technical stuff of it was part of it was sort of interesting. Um, But um, yeah, it was, so we, actually were incredibly lucky with the things that we got to do. I got, we got to go to the first open meeting of the ANC in Cape Town in, um, since 1953, since the ANC had been banned. And we saw Joe Slovo speak. 
and we um, we were out on a plane outside of um, of Cape Town with forty thousand other people, and it was just extraordinary. We had a chance to. I was in Soweto for um, for June twelfth for the Youth Day, the the memorial to the um, Sharptown massacres, and I was in. A, the, the ANC had been slow on the uptake, and so um, another party had managed to get um, to rent the biggest stadium in Soweto. So we had one that was half that size, and there were 70,000 people easily in a stadium that was built for 35,000. And at one point when I was trying to get into the stadium, there were so many people walking that I was lifted up off the ground. My feet were no longer touching the ground. It was and I was one of like three or four white people and I got to hear Miriam McCabe sing and I got to, I mean, it was, it was an extraordinary moment. And it was a moment when uh, people in the ANC discovered that Jan, that Jan and I, and especially that I had worked in, in uh, Nicaragua. And again, this was 1990. So this was the year that the Sandinistas lost the election and um, the, the opposition, UNO, got in. And, um, and the Sandinistas, after kind of loot, looting the place, they did actually hand over power to the, other, um, to the other country. And we could do a whole other pod on what I think about what's happening in Nicaragua now. But anyway, they wanted to know what were the mistakes that the FSLN, the Sandinistas, had made that the ANC should avoid. And of course, we're just, you know, a couple of old, weird white lesbians from, from uh, the United States. But, you know, we, we talked about uh, one, of the, one of the real weaknesses, actually, of the, of the Sandinistas that led to a real division between the Atlantic and the Pacific coasts of the country was their own racism and especially their racism towards um, indigenous people and the people of African descent who live in the Atlantic coast of Nicaragua. But sort of one of the emblematic moments for me when I was during, during this, this time was we were asked um, to design a flyer and I was uh, for the first meeting in a particular neighborhood of uh, Cape Town of the ANC. And they said, um, the woman who asked me said, you know, here's the text, come elect your leaders. Uh, the, here's the date, here's the place, you know, meet your, you know, come to, the, to this first ANC meeting. And so I did the flyer, you know, come elect your leaders, blah, blah, blah. She came back to me a day later, and she was really embarrassed that she had to ask me to make a change in the flyer. And the change was, instead of come elect your leaders, it said, come meet your leaders. And the ANC was facing this very real problem of how to move from having been an illegal clandestine organization where everybody had to be of the very highest confidence in order to be participants in the movement to suddenly becoming a mass movement that and a mass party that could that would still maintain its commitment to the freedom charter to the values that had you know that had animated the ANC all those years and i think one of the things that the ANC has discovered is that you know as 
Mr. Trotsky said all those years ago, it's really hard to create socialism in one country. And that um, they were, you know, that uh, free South Africa was still very much implicated and tied up in a larger international capital system. And frankly, there were some people who stole stuff, which unfortunately happens a lot in in uh, regimes all over the world, including the U.S. Um, I'm actually a Sarah Chase fan, or at least I don't know if I'm a fan of her, but I think her her book, Thieves of Nations, is actually really, really good about the role that corruption plays in destroying democracy. So um, another moment that I had that I will never forget is that Jan and I were invited to a meeting of the Organization of Lesbian and Gay Activists in Cape Town, which and it was held in a tiny little house um, in a neighborhood in Cape Town. And the reason we were invited was that Albie Sachs, who later became the Supreme Justice of, of um, or the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in in South Africa was visiting various sectors of the country to try to discover what kind of language they would like to see that concerned their own sector in a new constitution for South Africa. And so in Cape Town, he was meeting with the LGBT community. And, you know, this was a community that had had a role in the democratic uh, movement against apartheid, but it was a very conflicted role and not everybody was thrilled to have queer people um, in their movement, but he came and we were invited and I got to shake his left hand because his right hand had been blown off by the South African Defense Forces with a letter bomb and had a chance to you know, listen to him talking with gay people, not just from from Cape Town, but also from the townships outside of Cape Town. And it was an extraordinary moment in history in which, you know, and in fact, the South African constitution enshrines all kinds of rights for gay people that are not present directly in the U.S. constitution. So it was... But the the answer to the question you started out with, you know, relationship to the United States, Jan and I very quickly said to each other, this country is the place that is most like the United States of anywhere we have ever been. And this is why. If you were white in South Africa at that time, it was entirely possible to live your life literally without knowing the reality of the lives of the majority of people in your own country, that, that being the people of African descent and also the people of South Asian descent. But you could live as a white person and have no idea what the life of the woman who came to clean your house or take care of your children was like when she got on that overpacked bus and went back to, um, to, Soweto or wherever she was, um, Guguletu or whatever township she was living in, you did not have to know. And this was to me so, so um, comparable to the lives of white people in this country who, unless they choose to know, do not have to know because it's not going to come 
and hit them in the face about the lives of people of color and especially of African-Americans in this country. You can live a white solipsist life and never really be disturbed by the reality of racism in this country. And the same thing was true under apartheid in South Africa. You know, there were all kinds of books that were banned in South Africa, but you could go to the local mall and buy them if you wanted them. It's just nobody wanted them. And that was, you know, every country constructs race in a different way. So the way race works in South Africa is a little bit different from the way it works in the United States. And the hierarchy is a little bit differently constructed than it is here in the US. But the fact that there's a hierarchy and the fact that it affects people's um, lives is, is absolutely true in both countries. To the extent that when I was working in 1995 and 96 with an organization called Californians for Justice, and we were opposing a ballot initiative that eliminated affirmative action in, the, in California at all levels of state government, we actually hosted a delegation of, uh, of um, civic organizations from South Africa who are now living in a post-apartheid South Africa who wanted to learn about what are the things that can be done to root out the structures of racism once the legal support for racism is gone and yet the institutional structures are obviously still in place. And so they were very interested in affirmative action, which by the way in Britain is called positive discrimination um, as, as one of these possible approaches. So post-apartheid South Africa, I think has, um, is entering into the kind of period that the United States has been in since the end of Reconstruction and continues to be in today, in which the legal underpinnings of segregation, for example, are gone, and yet segregation as an institutional structure continues in residence, in education, in employment. So that's a very long-winded answer. Well, I, I love it. Uh, I'm, I'm a long-winded per person by nature. I, I really like how you connect to the United States. I was listening to uh, either a podcast or someone's interview where they were, it was a, a South African, and they were saying, you know, uh, what was it like during apartheid? How did the, the rest of the world respond? And the, the very interesting answer what, that this uh, gentleman gave was actually that, you know, folks in the United States and in places like Australia, in some ways, saw themselves in the South African situation better than a lot of Europeans or, or other folks. And so I really like that. Of course, I stole the, the word uh, for my uh, ongoing dissertation, which I call Apartheid New York, which uh, uh -huh. I, think, I think I only did that just to really upset people because uh, it is really fun for me to uh, uh, alienate my family uh, in White Staten Island. <laughs> but, but, you know, go ahead. The teacher in uh, me is totally fascinated to learn more about your dissertation. Well, I will, uh, I'll tell you what, I I'll be very happy to send you uh, an intro to read and then you can tell me if you want more uh, oh, right now. It's, it's, it's an interesting thing. And, and, and I do think there are so many connections. And of course, you know, I, I'll dare go there because I, I just have to. Um, when Tom first started publishing my stuff and with regularity, 
he gave me very little uh, advice, but there were two things he mentioned. And they weren't really strictures so much as just, hey, this is just something to think about. He said, well, number one, don't read the comments when people repost. <laughs> yeah. But of course, in the beginning, uh, you're just so excited to be published. And that's like telling someone not to look down. Right. So uh, from Heights, so I read all of the comments. And then he said, just be careful about writing about Israel. He, he didn't say don't do it. He mm-hmm. obviously is strong on that. But he said, you know, mm-hmm. you're a new writer. Just mm-hmm. be careful. Everything mm-hmm. you say, you're going to be an anti-Semite. And of course, uh, yep. then I, I took the opposite advice and decided to write a ton about it. Uh, so look, that, yeah. that's, that's a touchy subject and authors have played with it and activists, but I have no expectation of your answer. I'm interested. What do you think? You know, Israel, occupation, torture, dare uh, we say apartheid, is there a yes. connection and what value oh, does yes. it have, if any? So my father grew up in an Orthodox Jewish family in Norfolk, Virginia, and his father was the president of the Norfolk Zionist Club in the 1930s. And my father and I had a tacit, unspoken agreement that we would never, ever discuss that part of the world because we both knew that we would say unforgivable things to each other if we did. And um, I've never been to Israel. I've been to Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon in 2006 and i was actually in lebanon if we had done our trip in the opposite order that we had planned it and done lebanon last we would have actually been there when israel invaded um lebanon uh once again and so yeah let's let's talk about it because you know i grew up believing that here's the story right After World War II, the whole world felt so sorry for what had happened to the Jews, my people, that they all got together and gave them their own country, and it's called Israel. And that was more or less the story that I grew up with. And as, you know, I got older and kind of matured a little bit and um, began thinking about these things, some friends of mine in the early 80s began asking questions about if your interest as an American Jew is in um, your security and your safety in the world as a Jew, it could be argued that the existence and the actions of the state of Israel do not actually make you safer, but they actually put you in greater danger. Because if Israel insists on identifying itself as a Jewish state, and then performs actions, including, among other things, training the contra, um, performs actions that are unconscionable, then people are going to associate those actions with Jews. And um, I continue to think that the survival of my people is not um, made more likely by the actions of the state of Israel. So here's the thing. I honestly think that there is a contradiction between the idea that a state is Jewish, that is, exists for a particular ethnic group, and that a state is democratic. These two things do not actually hold together. 
which is why, you know, the UN General Assembly years ago said that Zionism is racism, which, you know, when you first hear it sounds like anti-Semitism. But if by Zionism you mean the belief that there should be a nation which exists solely for the benefit of members of one ethnic group, then, yeah, that is racism. I don't think there's any question that Israel, even among Jews in Israel, that there's profound racism so that those Jews who came from Yemen or who came, even the, the Bat Israel from, um, who were discovered in Ethiopia, who apparently had been so sequestered from the rest of the world that they didn't even know that the second temple had fallen in 70 AD and were rescued by Israel during the, um, during the famine in, in Ethiopia and brought to Israel, those people have not exactly been treated like first-class citizens by white or European descent Israelis. But absolutely, the, um, the process of annexation of the West Bank and now, you know, with Bibi's uh, and Benjamin Netanyahu's latest announcements about his intention to, to legally annex most of the settlements in the West Bank, there's absolutely no question that this leads to the creation of an apartheid state where the, where the separation is even greater in some ways than it was in South Africa. In South Africa, white people had black people working in their homes. And um, certainly in Israel, there are Palestinians working in construction and working inside Israel, and some of them even live in Israel, um, Israeli Arabs. But there is a literal physical separation wall, you know, the model for the wall on the Mexican border, I imagine, that um, separates and creates an apartness between these two groups of people. So yeah, I can go there. And, and to me, it's really, really painful as a nice Jewish girl who goes to an Episcopal church to see the, the perversion of a tradition of justice and concern for the widow and the orphan and the, um, the belief in a divine who works towards justice in history to see it perverted in this way is very, very painful. Yeah, I, um, I, I, I'm, I think that's a great answer. And I can't imagine the just, you know, the, the, the turmoil that some must feel about this because there is such a rich tradition. You know, I study civil rights and the, 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 the connection mm -hmm. between American Jews, I mean, getting murdered, right? Like going yeah, around yeah. to the South and teaching and, and active, you know, it's, it's an amazing uh, tradition, right? It's not yeah. perfect, but it's an amazing tradition. Uh, and, and I think that one thing that you brought up that's interesting is, you know, in how in some ways the separateness in the occupied territories and in Israel is even greater than South Africa. And one of the things that strikes me is, you know, you sort of an anti-apartheid activist in the States and, and then over in South Africa. One of the things that strikes me is that, you know, whether it's the anti-BDS legislation or any of the other just kind of public policy, there has almost been more of a blackout against even personal activism or personal boycotts against the occupation than there ever were during what turned out to be a pretty rich anti-apartheid 
uh, you know, private activism in the United States and worldwide. There's mm -hmm. been like a squelching of it in the United States. I mean, so oh, yeah. whereas you had, you know, Rosa Parks was, you know, picketing the South African embassy long after people forgot about the, the, the bus incident or only remembered the bus incident. Right. And, and you just don't see quite as much of that, whether it's a media blackout or Congress almost, I think only 16 people voted against it, the anti-BDS legislation. It's really profound. Yeah, no, it is. It's very profound and it's very self-serving. And, um, you know, the, the U.S.'s strategic use of Israel in the Middle East as a bastion uh, against, um, you know, as, as a place to defend U.S. oil interests, um, even though, you know, Israel doesn't have oil, but, but our use of that place for our own strategic purposes has been, um, you know, very deforming to what could have been in Israel and to, um, you know, it's, it's interesting for many years, I, the sort of the little formula that people I knew liked to use was a democratic secular Israel as sort of the solution that it would be one country that would be secular that would and would be genuinely democratic. And then for many years after Oslo, the, the goal was a two-state solution, which to me always looked like kind of a bad deal, honestly. And it got to be a worse and worse deal the more of um, the West Bank that Israel began, you know, took over. And now I think we're back to the only hope for Israel is as a democratic, secular country. And... Yeah, I forget how I got there from the question you asked me. Forgive me. Now my train of thought is just has left the station. <laughs> well, we we we've kept you on so long. That's that's probably a part of it. Uh, uh, no, it's 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 so important, and uh, the blackout of that issue has yeah. really bothered me. Yes. Um, I mean, I re I just I just watched my eleven year old has the. Uh, the ill uh, experience probably of having homeschooling from a, uh. a, a, a manic history nut. And so, he, he, so he's reading, uh, you know, he's reading a book about the crusades right now, of course. Oh, wow. And, uh, and then we watched like a movie, uh, kingdom of heaven, which is flawed, but decent cinema. And then I told him, I said, well, you know, they're still fighting over Jerusalem and, and all these things. And, you know, he was blown away by just some minor, or at least he pretended to be to keep me happy by some yep. photos I showed him from today. And, you know, it's, he's 11, but you know, a lot of this isn't talked about. So I think it's important oh, no. that we do. Yeah. Um, and, uh, all right, Kagan, why don't you take us out, buddy? Okay. So we've done our best not to talk about coronavirus. Um, <laughs> but I just wanted to ask uh, you, is there anything that you feel like we should be paying attention to particularly right now? Yeah, absolutely. I think we should be paying it. And I sort of uh, foreshadowed that a little while ago. I think we should be paying attention to what kinds of policies we want to put in place as we're coming out of this. And, you know, specifically, I think this is really a tipping point for climate change. And if we can come out of coronavirus with um, an understanding that, that 
we actually like having clean skies and clean water and that um, the, the world really can be damaged by things that happen and the human species can genuinely be threatened and therefore let us come together as we fought the coronavirus to also take a look at, um, at uh, climate change. The other thing I would say is what what the coronavirus in this country has done is absolutely pulled back all the curtains on inequality in this country, on racial inequality, economic inequality, healthcare. If nothing else, we should at the very least be able to get universal healthcare for people in this country as a result of coronavirus. I, I think that it has absolutely clarified, especially to people who thought they were okay because they had healthcare through their employer, just how vulnerable we all really are. So yeah, those are my hopes. I also am in that same mode where I'm feeling like, the, yeah, those people who are uncomfortable in a way that they really haven't been, mm -hmm. particularly white people, um, and just understanding that like, oh shit, like we are, um, we are vulnerable in yeah. ways that we didn't think that we were. So how do we correct that? Not by freaking out and trying to reopen really quickly and go back to normal, Thank but you. by coming up with new ways and new thoughts of, of, of just ways of doing things. I mean, like I think about the price of oil, right? And mm -hmm. how the storages are filling up. And so the price has been dropping. And uh, Henry and I live here in, in the, the Portland area. Uh-huh. I was going to get gas the other day and I was like, oh, 224. I haven't seen gas that cheap in a long time. I'll buy a and, lot. Yeah. And my wife is from, she's from the Bay Area, um, mm -hmm. she's from Concord. And so she's like, I've never seen gas that cheap ever. Yeah. And I know it's only, it's only like temporary, but the idea is like, we can do, we can still thrive with less. Like yes. we can still thrive in a way that everybody has their needs met or at least, you know, generally. And we don't have to like go after these crazy profit uh, schemes. We, yeah. can, we can just do fine with less. And yes, I know it sucks because certain parts of the economy are really going to hurt from this. Um, retail, restaurants, mm -hmm. I know that they're going to, that like, we're not going to be able to go back to that for a while. Unite and, Here, the hospitality union, 98% of their members have lost their jobs. Oh, and it's yeah. one of the most oh. powerful unions in the country. We're seeing in Oregon, like the restaurants are like 81% mm -hmm. layoff. And I know mm -hmm. that every state is probably doing the same. So like, we can't just leave these people in the lurch. We have to figure something else out. And I think that there is a real, like, like you said, there's a real opportunity for us to actually get some of these policies pushed. Yeah, I agree. Very, uh, very glad that Bernie, although his campaign didn't do as well as, as we all hoped, uh, elevated the issue of Medicare for all. And yes. that com combining that with the virus, there may be conditions where something like that would be much more plausible. Henry, I think you're exactly right. And Bernie, whether or not he gets he got the, the nomination, he has absolutely pushed the Democratic Party to the left in ways that I haven't seen in a long time. And I also want to give a shout out to my, um, my gal, Elizabeth Warren, because I think she also helped. But yeah, 
I think you're right about Medicare for all. I hope so anyway. Me too. Me too. Uh, I'm glad you brought up uh, Liz Warren. One of my uh, dorky interests, I don't know how I stay single, is that a fun thing for me at night, uh, guilty pleasure, is watching YouTube videos of Liz Warren grill Wall Street folks. Um, So I I, kind of hope that she doesn't become vice president uh, because, Mm -hmm. I mean, Someone has to do it. And what am I yeah. going to watch when I need yep. to feel better about, <laughs> about the universe? Uh, in the Senate. So, yeah, this has been great, uh, Rebecca. And thank you so much for, thank you, for doing it. I, I think you proved that uh, we can cover an enormous range of topics if we have the right people uh, who have just the breadth of experience that you do. And I, I agree that the, the, the macabre gift of Corona is its exposure Uh, of the system of the flaws and uh hey whether it's in the classroom or your activism you're you're doing something and and i have to tell myself that every night so that i can sleep but i can assure you that you are and i've been reading you for a while and let's do that let's do that nicaragua episode so i'll be in touch about that yeah Uh, yeah we are super interested and so just so you know this is a mutual admiration society because i've been reading your stuff too and i think it's phenomenal so well, thank you uh, so much, and uh, we'll do this again. And yeah. uh, hey, just just tell us, Haymarket Books is uh, is your next work. Is there right. a, a, a tentative date that people in can theory, start looking for? In theory, it's spring of 2021, but Tom keeps moving the deadline back, so I don't know. All right, that's great. Well, I hope people will check it out, and uh, thanks again, Rebecca, and let's do thank this you. again soon. I'll be in touch for sure. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Great, bye. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify. You name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. And listen to my song. I Pay attention, I will not be.